Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. Uh, Have you fully melted, Ben? No, not quite yet. I do stick to everything. (laughs) We are in the midst of a pretty intense heat wave. We are in Calgary, and it is... 31 degrees outside Celsius and probably like 29 degrees inside. Yeah. Uh, We are under the heat dome. Yeah. And this is not... This is too much. And it's going to get worse. Yeah. It's it's late June and this is about the upper limit of how hot it should get in Calgary. Ever. Um, But it's going to get hotter by midweek. For our American listeners, it's like 86 degrees Fahrenheit. And for our international listeners, I know that there are places in the world that get much hotter than 30 Celsius in June, but it's not supposed to be this hot in Calgary. Now, obviously, we are not experiencing the worst of this heat wave, Um, uh, like Pacific Northwest in the States and Western BC are getting like up to like 40 plus, which is very abnormal for them. Again, this is all in Celsius. I I don't fucking know what it is. Over 100. It's over 100 Fahrenheit. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be upwards of like 38 in Calgary by midweek, but it's, it's all to say that we are too hot. We are too hot here today, and if our brains go mushy, we apologize. We in apologize advance. in advance. It's because we're too hot. Yeah, we're gonna try our best, folks. But we broke the planet, and so now, dear listener, you will have to deal with some mush brain. What are we watching today, Ben? Sarah, I'm really excited about what we're watching today. Uh, this is gonna be a great episode. I'm hoping uh, we're gonna have a great time after sort of a string of not the best lesser lesser movies this is a moment this is an episode that marks a moment in the horror genre's history as significant as the release of frankenstein in 1931 or son of frankenstein in 1939 this is this is a turning point we are watching the curse of frankenstein from 1957 directed by terence fisher and I'm oh so excited about it. Um, what is it about Frankenstein and revitalizing the horror genre? I'm not really sure, but like... It's the electricity. Right. Sure. Yep. That would do it. Yeah. But I am actually serious. I, I'm very interested to see this movie. I have not seen this movie ever. Yeah, this is going to be new for you, which I'm pretty excited about because you're a big Mary Shelley person. You're a big, like, Frankenstein, the novel person. Uh, You know, we've obviously watched all the other Frankenstein movies up to this point. And this movie, you know, not only revitalizes the horror genre, but, like, sort of revitalizes and pushes the gothic horror subgenre into, like, a bold new age, as Mm -hmm. it were. Um, Which we all know is totally my shit yeah exactly (laughs) and this movie marks like a very specific delineation point in the cinematic aesthetic 
of gothic horror. With this film, we are moving sort of away from the era of fog machines and black and white shadows and women in long white nightgowns in the moonlight. And we're moving into an era of bold colors, very red blood, gore, and very low-cut outfits on women, and more explicit visual content. It's a big deal, Ben. Yeah, so I'm really excited to see what your reaction is going to be to this reinvention. But it's, it's another version of Frankenstein, and we've seen a lot of versions of Frankenstein, but this one is significant in that it is not a sequel to any of the previous Universal Frankenstein movies. Yeah, and what's also kind of unique about Frankenstein as a horror monster is we've seen like riffs on vampires and Dracula and all that, but nothing really like that for Frankenstein in the same kind of way. The closest would be monstrous figures. Yeah, the... Like Rondo Hatton? Right. Frankenstein is just as much public domain as Dracula, but I think the Universal Films created such a iconic and definitive portrayal of the creature, and Universal was so litigious about its portrayal of the creature that it really made it a daunting task for anyone to even consider like doing off-brand versions of Frankenstein, because mm-hmm. like if he doesn't have the you know, flat top head and the bolts in the neck and stuff. How's the audience even going to know who this dude is? Right, exactly. So he's a lot harder to adapt and play around with than Dracula, who, as you've said, we've seen a lot of different variations on either named or not. Mm -hmm. So because this is an all new take on Frankenstein, um, I thought it'd be a good idea to go back to the novel Mm -hmm. and give a little refresher on it since the last time we really talked about the novel in some depth was some time ago. Yes. Now, if listeners want to go back and hear our thoughts about Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, um, both of which directly adapt the novel, uh, you can find them as episode 26 and episode 48, respectively. I will also note that Frankenstein is ranked number 17 and Bride is ranked as number 18. High rank in films now that our list is getting close to 200 movies. Yes. Son of Frankenstein is higher, but I'm not going to be talking about the son because he's not in the novel. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So Mary Shelley. She wrote both fiction and nonfiction, but she's most well known for her gothic novel Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus, which was published in 1818. First published in 1818. Mm -hmm. Um, She was born in 1797 to Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin. Now, Wollstonecraft died due to an infection post-birth, so Mary Shelley was named after her and uh, was really just raised by her father. Um, She did have a half-sister through Wollstonecraft, uh, Fanny, She would gain a stepsister when Godwin would remarry, and this would be Claire Claremont. 
Growing up, Mary wasn't given access to formal education. Instead, learning what she knew from her father's library and his circle of political and philosophical friends and followers. Uh, and this is how she met Percy Shelley. Now, they fell in love. She was 17, he was 22, and already married. Mm. Uh, her father did not approve. So, Mary and Percy and her stepsister, Claire, decided to leave home and travel Europe in 1814. With the suicide of Percy's wife in 1816, uh, Mary and Percy were now able to get married. Um, and so then they did that and uh, went vacationing in Switzerland uh, with Mary's sister, Claire, Claremont, and their friends, Lord Byron and John Polidori. Just a real eclectic mix of friends. Mm -hmm. Now, in contradiction to what we are experiencing today, um, 1816 was the year without a summer mm -hmm. because of... Volcanic eruption, throwing ash into the atmosphere, which dimmed the sun. Yes. Yeah. So um, during a particularly dark and stormy night while vacationing, um, this group of friends decided to tell ghost stories and try to, like, one-up one another. And this uh, tale that Mary told won the bet and was the beginning of uh, what would eventually become Frankenstein. For the next two years, uh, she would be working on and revising the story, eventually publishing Frankenstein in 1818. Now, it was published anonymously with a preface from Percy, uh, so everyone thought that it was Percy's novel. It received a lot of praise, and then when rumors started coming out that, no, actually Mary wrote it, then all of a sudden the praise and acclaim went sour. They were like, hmm. how could a woman write this? Hmm. That's not very womanly, mm -hmm. like, junk like that. So this 1818 version had much less sympathy for Frankenstein than what we know of um, the more common 1837 version. The theme of failed parenthood is much larger, and the fact that the creature was abandoned is the sin of the parent, and that essentially leading to Frankenstein's own downfall. Now, by this point, Mary had been estranged from her own father for about four years um, and had also been struggling with her own family, um, with four kids born and three dying during this period of estrangement. After publishing Frankenstein, Mary and Percy and uh, their one son at this point um, decide to travel to Italy for Percy's health, which was kind of struggling, and to avoid debtors because writing doesn't pay the bills often. Hmm. And it was in Italy in 1822 that Mary would suffer a terrible miscarriage and Percy would die in a boating accident. Now, at this point, Mary heads back to London with her one son, reconciles with her father, and in 1823, sees a very successful adaptation of Frankenstein on the stage. She quite liked it, um, and because of the success of the play, uh, they decided to republish Frankenstein in 1823, uh, this time actually giving Mary author credit. In 1831, she decided to revise Frankenstein and add in her own preface. Now, this version um, toned down that theme about failed parenthood, uh, most likely because by this time she had reconciled with her father, and 
In doing so, it makes Frankenstein a bit more sympathetic. In lessening the prevalence of that theme, she brought forward um, the, the themes of a failed Adam and a fallen angel, kind of like tying the stories of the creature and Satan in Paradise Lost. Uh, those themes get brought forward. And 20 years later, um, she would die of a brain tumor in 1851. Just a parade of sorrows in mary shelley's life yes her love with percy was very intense and it's very interesting to me that she had such like intense emotions throughout her life these intense um these very significant like joyful feelings of meeting the love of your life that leading to the estrangement of your with your father, traveling Europe, then something like the death of your sister, uh, the death of all of your children except one who was also still sickly. Yeah, a lot of a lot of powerful emotions in Mary's life, which like was you know on trend for the Romantic era of writing that she was a part of. Uh, per- to be fair, Percy was more in the Romantic movement than Mary. Um, But yes, I mean, all of their friends were romantics. Mm -hmm. For listeners, just to clarify, this is capital R romantics, as in the romanticist literary movement, Uh, though I'm sure Lord Byron would not object to the title of a being a romantic. Sure. Uh, If you want a translation of the romanticist literary movement to like a modern context, uh, it would be like, replace the word romantic with extra. (laughs) They were very extra. Uh, that's uh, one way of putting it. Sure, that's that's what we can do for the podcast. We don't have to go in depth. This isn't an English lecture. As far as the novel goes, it is epistolary, kind of like how Dracula was. Um, and it opens with a sea captain sailing in the North Pole. And it's in his, like, diary entries. And he describes how he saw a giant man on a dog sled. Hours later, they rescue um, a normal-sized man (laughs) who identifies himself as uh, Dr. Victor Frankenstein. And as he lies dying in the captain's bed, uh, he kind of gives his life story to be like, beware of ambition for these reasons. He explains how growing up, he was always interested in alchemical procedures and became focused on recreating natural phenomena. In university, Frankenstein endeavored to test his theories of reanimation and in recreating a huge humanoid, or humunculus. He succeeds, and the creature is hideous and appears like a walking corpse. And Victor is so distraught, he falls ill and abandons the creature. Now, he's been studying in Germany Um, but was raised in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, And after a four-month recovery after this big experience of, like, falling ill, he heads back home, and he hears that his brother, William, was killed. But no one knows by whom. Frankenstein sees the creature nearby and suspects him as the murderer. Instead, Nanny Justine is framed and hanged as a result. Frankenstein goes and hikes the mountains, and the creature finds him and explains how he grew up in the wilderness away from people because they were scared of his appearance. 
He learned to speak from overhearing a nearby family, and he's taught himself to read, notably by reading Paradise Lost by John Milton. He became terrified of his own appearance and befriended a a blind man who became a bit of a father figure. Um, But when the rest of uh, that blind man's family comes to the cabin, he's forced to flee. So the creature burns their cottage down uh, because he's angry about being brought into a world that hates him and fears him. And he swears revenge on his creator, Frankenstein. As part of this revenge, he, the creature, killed William and framed their nanny, Justine. Now, in this confrontation, the creature demands that Frankenstein create a companion for him because everyone else hates him, and he threatens to kill Frankenstein's fiancée, Elizabeth, basically saying, if I can't have someone, then neither can you. Now, Frankenstein fears that the creature and his mate could cause the end of the world because uh, then they'd be able to reproduce and create things themselves um and ultimately create their own race of atomic super beings exactly absolutely um so while frankenstein was like in the midst of creating this mate he destroys the corpse um before fully animating it and the creature sees this and threatens frankenstein and then disappears into the night next thing frankenstein knows is a family friend has been killed And he has been framed for it. Eventually, uh, he makes it back home to marry Elizabeth. Um, But Frankenstein has become, like, very paranoid because he knows that the creature is kind of at every turn. It's their wedding night, and Frankenstein begins to search the house for the creature because the threat that the creature gave was that you won't be alone on your wedding night. And while he searches the house, the creature sneaks in and strangles Elizabeth. Now, Frankenstein's dad dies from grief over all of this death, uh, Elizabeth, William, Justine, all of it. And Frankenstein then vows revenge himself on the creature and follows him to the North Pole and brings us back to the present with the captain. Now, the captain sees this story as a warning. Um, Frankenstein says, like, make sure to avoid ambition because... Everything in my life got fucked up because I tried to create something and, and push the limits of human knowledge and, and such. After telling the story, Frankenstein dies. And this is when the captain discovers the creature on the ship, and he's grieving over Frankenstein's body. And the creature vows to kill himself so others won't know of his existence. And he hops off the boat onto some ice and drifts away. And that's the end. If listeners are familiar with the universal adaptation of Frankenstein, you might be wondering, well, where's Fritz? Where's the hunchback assistant? So the bumbling assistant, Fritz, was actually added in the 1823 play that Mary saw. Um, There have been many adaptations. Uh, With film, we've seen all that survive. (laughs) The first that we saw was 1910's J. Searle Dolly's uh, Frankenstein, uh, which you can hear our thoughts about in episode one, and then um, 1931's Frankenstein from Universal, directed by James Whale and starring Colin Clive, Boris Karloff, and Dwight Fry. The thing about that version, too, is that like the screenplay of that version is based heavily on another stage play version 
which is based on the book rather than being like based on the book directly. Yeah. So the 1931 film was adapted by John Balderston, uh, who also adapted the Dracula play to film. Um, And he based, as Ben said, this screenplay off of an unpublished play version by Peggy Webling. It also only adapts, like, I would say, like, the first half-ish directly of the novel, leaving the stuff about creating a mate to be followed up on in 1935's Bride of Frankenstein. Now, just to, like, recap that film, um, the film features a Henry Frankenstein and his hunchback assistant, Fritz, building the creature out of corpses. Uh, Fritz does go into a nearby college to steal a brain, uh, accidentally taking a corrupt, abnormal brain. They succeed in bringing the creature to life, and Henry does try to be a good dad. He does try to be a parent to this creature, but uh, Fritz is abusive and undermines kind of anything that Henry is actually trying to do. Now, an old professor of Henry's, uh, Dr. Waldman, comes to the castle laboratory where they're doing this at the request of Henry's friend, Victor, and fiance Elizabeth. And the doctor sees what Henry and Fritz are doing. He's like, what the fuck? But I guess if, like, you're going to do this, okay, like, let's try to do this right. Now, the creature kills Fritz, um, because, like I said, Fritz was abusive. So Henry and Waldman conclude that the creature must be destroyed. Henry is, you know, taken away. You know, Waldman's like, I'll, t- I'll deal with this. And Henry's taken with his Elizabeth back home. And before Waldman can actually, like, destroy the creature, the creature kills Waldman and escapes to a nearby village. While at the village, the creature meets a little girl named Maria, has a cute little moment, and then, uh, I would say, accidentally drowns her. Yeah. Now, it happens to be Henry and Elizabeth's wedding day, but it gets derailed because Henry hears that the creature's back in town. Or rather, in town, he's not back. Um, Elizabeth gets attacked and threatened by the creature, and Maria also gets discovered in the lake. So the village, along with Henry, form a mob and end up cornering the creature at a windmill, which is where the creature and Henry uh, have a confrontation. Uh, Now, the creature can't speak at all, just, you know, mumbles and whatever, but you can tell that, you know, he gets across his animosity towards Henry, and Henry has pity, but is like, no, this dude needs to be destroyed. During this confrontation, Henry gets thrown off the windmill, just as it gets engulfed in flame. Uh, The creature is trapped inside as the windmill collapses and is presumed dead. The crowd gathers around Henry. He's all right, but just hurt. So they take him back to his house. And the last we see is he's in bed recovering and uh, going to be married. So that's the end of the first one. And it was a big hit. When it came time to adapting the Bride of Frankenstein, uh, the code has been implemented, the Hollywood production code. So there's a lot of more subtext going on in this film. And, you know, it's four years later. Not everyone has reruns. You can't just go rent 
Frankenstein from the video store or catch it on Netflix. So they change a few things. Um, when Bride of Frankenstein opens, uh, it has Elsa Lancaster as Mary Shelley telling the story to Percy and Lord Byron. Talking about like, oh, it's such a dark ghost story. Let's let's dive back in, pick up where we left off. And as we come back into the story, we see that the creature has actually survived the collapse of the windmill and that Henry is just now being taken back to the manor to be nursed back to health. And as he's recovering, Henry is visited by an old mentor named Dr. Pretorius and is pulled back in to uh, homosexual, excuse me, I mean, um, into building homunculi. That's part of that subtext I was talking about. Now, he's pulled back in because Pretorius is like, the reason you failed is because you had an abnormal brain. I can create an artificial brain and thus we can create like a good like, not evil creature. Meanwhile, the creature um, is on the run. At one point, he gets captured and chained up, but he manages to escape. And as he's running through the forest, he finds a hermit in the woods who is blind. Because he's blind, he's not afraid of the creature. So uh, the creature heals up in this cottage, learns to speak from this man, uh, things like friend and good and fire bad and they have like a nice little life um until some wandering hunters come by uh and the creature is discovered um in the midst of the struggle the hut is burned down and the creature escapes again while on the run he wanders into a graveyard into a crypt and comes upon dr pretorius and pretorius is like ah i see you are still alive well we are building you a mate Mate, good. Now, Henry has tried to, like, back out of this. He's like, no, I'm getting in too deep again. And he gets married with Elizabeth. But Pretorius visits with the creature to pressure Henry into finishing what he started. And to ensure he'll follow through, they kidnap Elizabeth. So Henry, along with Pretorius, creates the bride, who is also played by Lancaster, uh, which is neat with Mary and the bride being brought together in this way. Um, so the bride is brought to life and is introduced to the creature and immediately screams. And the creature's like, she hates me. Fuck. <laughs> and decides to destroy the castle, flipping a switch saying, we belong dead. Now he does allow Henry to escape the castle with Elizabeth in tow. Um, but the creature, the bride and Pretorius at least as far as the ending of this film is concerned, all die in the, like, explosion of this castle laboratory. That's the end of The Bride of Frankenstein. As we've said, there are future Frankensteins, but they no longer adapt the book. They might continue some of the themes, um, but as far as the book is concerned, um, Universal's Frankenstein and Bride are kind of it. And they do change things up a bit to be a little unique, you know, especially with where they end the first movie, um, bringing in, you know, Fritz, which isn't in the original novel, and especially with the creature design and makeup being synonymous with creature and even with Frankenstein as a name. Right. I think, you know, what you see in the Universal movies is a continuation of that process of making Henry more sympathetic mm -hmm. um, because he's sort of a romantic 
like hero now as well as like washing his hands a bit of like the monster being bad because like oh well it's fritz's fault both for like getting an abnormal brain and then for being a dick mm-hmm. and then in the second one it's praetorius for um tempting henry back to the dark side mm-hmm. as it were yeah so after bride you've got son of frankenstein in 1939 ghost of frankenstein in 1941 frankenstein meets the wolfman in 1943 house of frankenstein in 1944 house of dracula in 1945 and then the last time frankenstein was in a movie was abbott and costello meet frankenstein in 1948 which was a comedy uh and which just got reviewed by us for our first horror adjacent bonus episode yes that uh should be in your rss feeds right before this episode so sort of an interesting um trajectory yes (laughs) and uh i think another reason why we i think we talk about this in the episode with frankenstein meets the wolfman about how much baggage there is with the way universal has adapted frankenstein Mm. so not only is Frankenstein difficult to use for others because of, like, you know, name recognition reasons and copyright reasons, but Universal has trouble using him because of that amount of baggage that they've glomped onto him. Yeah, and by the, you know, as the movies went on, they established a very, like, repetitive pattern yes. of some new scientist wanting to recreate or bring back the creature for some reason, needing to find Frankenstein's old notes to do it, uh, needing to find the creature and revive him from however he died the last time that process taking like the whole movie. And then the last like five minutes getting the creature up and running, who then goes berserk and destroys everything rinse, repeat for the next round. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so here we are nine years after Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, after the whole franchise had kind of like fallen into Mm self-parody. So Curse of Frankenstein is not from Universal. No. It is from Hammer Films in Britain. And the success of the Quatermass Experiment and X the Unknown had shown Hammer Films producer Anthony Hines that there was money to be made in flouting the X rating from the British Board of Film Censors. So at this point, uh, the studio was hard at work with the production of Quatermass 2, their official adaptation of the BBC Quatermass 2 miniseries. Producer Max Rosenberg and writer Milton Sabotsky came to Hammer producer Michael Carreras with a simple idea for a film. What about Frankenstein, though? (laughs) So Zabotsky had written a script and had this concept with Michael Rosenberg uh, for a new Frankenstein movie, which was originally going to be like a black and white movie with Boris Karloff uh, starring as Victor von Frankenstein as the scientist making the monster. That's... That would be very interesting. I don't... I, mm. So Carreras bought Rosenberg and Zabotsky's idea uh, for $5,000. Uh, don't you mean pounds? 
No, $5,000. And cut them out of the production. Fuck. Like, basically just bought it off them. Like, they brought him this idea, and he was like, cool, I'll buy it off you. And, And then that's it. Like, you're done with your involvement. And then quickly discarded their entire original concept because Universal International was highly litigious about their version of Frankenstein and threatened a lawsuit if any element of Hammer's production resembled theirs in any way. Yeah. Like, that's why Boris Karloff gave me, like, piqued my interest, but also gave me pause because I can see, like, I don't know how much footing Universal would have to be litigious about that part of it, but I feel like they would try. So basically what Carreras did here was he was like, oh, a new Frankenstein movie. That's a dope idea. I'm going to pay you for that idea, like making a new Frankenstein slash pay you essentially to not make your movie hush money <laughs> like like he's he's essentially bought off their production so that they're not going to go make their movie he can go make a frankenstein movie but he can do whatever he wants now and not do their version so universal's litigiousness led to carreras making three decisions about this production the first was to commission a wholly new script from jimmy sangster the former production manager turned screenwriter who had written X the Unknown. Okay. Second, it would be shot in the single strip Eastman color process. Oh, so made the decision for color right away. Yes, uh, as a way to make it visually different from the Universal films. Third, Philip Leakey's makeup design would need to bear absolutely no relation to the iconic Jack Pierce design from the Universal films. So no flat top head, no uh, like... Clopper shoes. Yeah, no... Platform shoes. Yeah, no neck bolts. Had to be completely different. So as a former production manager, Sangster wrote his script with an eye to cost. Uh, forgoing scenes of crowds of villagers storming castles for a focus on the character of Baron Victor Frankenstein. Indeed, Hammer's primary methodology in distinguishing their Frankenstein movie would become focusing on the doctor over the monster, creating a story about the abuses of power perpetrated by the upper classes. Awesome. So even though Colin Clive is like the star of Universal's Frankenstein, like Boris Karloff became this huge breakout success because the movie's really played to the pathos of the creature. Yeah, but also Universal tends to always focus on the havoc, like the monster in their movie reeks, um, and the like mob response to it. That's a pretty solid Universal formula as well as a focus on like the idea of like the misunderstood monster yes absolutely so hammer doesn't give a shit about the misunderstood monster (laughs) Um, they are not interested in a sympathetic monster they're not interested in a sympathetic frankenstein they're interested in well well basically jimmy sangster said that he like didn't look at any previous adaptations so we're not pulling anything from any old plays from any of the old movies He went back to the book and reread it, but he wasn't even, like, here to, like, do a true-to-the-book thing either. He just was like, okay, from reading the book, 
what's my take on the story? And his take on the story was that Baron Victor Frankenstein is a rich member of the upper class who thinks he can get away with whatever the fuck he wants because he's rich and upper class, and that's bullshit. Amazing. So Val Guest, who was the director of Quatermass Experiment, was busy prepping Quatermass 2. So direction of the film was turned over to Terence Fisher, who had been with Hammer since 1951. Born in 1904 and raised in a conservative Christian home, Fisher left school at 16 to join the Merchant Navy for five years. He then became a clapper boy at Gainsborough Pictures. That's someone who... Um, Claps the slate. Okay. Yeah. I was going to... Because I think of like someone who's like, like as soon as um, a take is done, like clapping no. to keep the like actor's like ego no. up. <laughs> Nowadays, we would call that like a third assistant camera operator. But back then, that's a clapper boy. So he rose to become an assistant editor by 1934. By 1936, he was a full editor, and then in 1948, he began directing feature films for Gainsborough. He began at Hammer in 1951, uh, and by 1957, he had completed 26 total feature films. Wow. Curse of Frankenstein was to have a budget of 65,000 pounds, or $270,000, which means it would have about one and a half times the budget of Quatermass Experiment, or over four times the budget of X the Unknown. Wow, but still pretty cheap. Fisher was chosen to direct due to his reputation for reliability. It's like, we need someone who can, like, make sure this thing doesn't go over budget because we're already spending a lot of money because we're shooting in color. Yeah. So Fisher's cinematographer for this film would be Jack Asher who decided on a very theatrical style of lighting for the film in order to emphasize the color photography, uh, specifically choosing a bold color palette with very strong reds and um, a lot of like unnatural colors. Asher wasn't really like concerned with realism so much. To play the key role of Baron Victor Frankenstein, television actor Peter Cushing was cast. Born in 1913 to an upper-class family that contained several stage actors, Cushing was the younger of two boys, and his mother had actually wanted a girl. So for the first few years of Peter's life, she dressed him as a girl, let his hair grow long and curly, put, like, ribbons in it, and and did that whole thing. Um, He had pneumonia several times as a child and survived, uh, which Good was for him. Yeah, not common back then. Yes. Uh, and he developed an early love of costumes and make-believe. In school, Cushing was a very poor student in all subjects except for the arts, having little attention span for anything that didn't interest him. He played the lead in almost every school play through his teen years. However, Cushing's father opposed his son's acting ambitions and instead seized on his son's love of art to get him a job in the drawing department of a surveyor's office for, like, a city planning council. So at this job, Cushing took pleasure in drawing planned buildings Uh, But these building plans were always rejected due to being too imaginative and expensive and having, uh, like, unrealistic foundations, uh, which Cushing sort of dismissed as like, yeah, that's not important, though. That's an unimportant detail. (laughs) While working at the surveyor's office, Cushing applied 21 times for a scholarship to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. 
finally getting an in-person interview in 1935 that was granted so the school could ask him to stop writing in person. (laughs) That's impressive. That's how you get your foot in the door. In 1936, Cushing won a job as an assistant stage manager with a repertory theater company where he also got to play like bit parts uh, throughout the season. In 1939, he decided he wanted to give Hollywood a try, uh, so he moved there with only 50 pounds to his name. He appeared in a number of small parts through 1941, but despite like steadily rising fortunes as an actor in Hollywood, uh, he got very homesick, and he moved to New York City to act on Broadway in order to raise the money to return home. Back in England, his poor health Uh, prevented him from serving in the Second World War. So he instead found work performing in shows to entertain the troops, uh, where he met and fell in love with actress Helen Beck. The two were married in 1943. Lung congestion made performing difficult for Cushing, uh, and he had to take frequent breaks for his health, which made making ends meet difficult. After the war, Cushing couldn't get successful auditions. In 1946, he lost a part in a Laurence Olivier-directed play because he couldn't perform an American accent. At age 33, Cushing considered himself a failure. Oh no. In 1947, Olivier sought out Cushing, having remembered his failed audition, and cast him as Osric for his film adaptation of Hamlet, making Cushing's first appearance in a British film. The film was highly successful, uh, winning Best Picture at the Academy Awards, and so afterwards Cushing and his wife accepted offers to join Olivier's theater company. Struggling with his mental health, uh, Cushing still believed that his career was going nowhere, so his wife encouraged him to write all of the British TV producers working at that time to inquire about work. This strategy paid off, and over the next three years, Cushing worked steadily on television, gaining renown for roles such as playing Mr. Darcy in a 1952 version of (laughs) Pride and Prejudice. I cannot imagine him as a Mr. Darcy. To be fair, though, I am just seeing General Tarkin. Mm. (laughs) Uh, And then his biggest acclaim came from playing Winston Smith in a 1954 television adaptation of 1984. Uh, which was a very controversial TV screening due to its content. In 1956, Cushing won a BAFTA award for Best Actor in recognition of his television work, Um, but he found the medium to be highly stressful and really wanted to return to the more laid-back pace of film production. Probably for his health as well. Mm. When Cushing heard that Hammer was mounting a production of Frankenstein, he had his agent contact the studio to express his interest. Meanwhile, Hammer co-founder James Carreras had been actively trying to get Cushing aboard a Hammer film since seeing the TV version of 1984. So The Curse of Frankenstein would be the first of 21 films that Cushing would ultimately make at Hammer. Wow. For the role of Baron Frankenstein, Cushing trained with a surgeon to learn how to wield a scalpel correctly. And on the set, he would make a new lifelong friend with the actor hired to play the monster, Christopher Lee. I'm so excited already, Ben. Oh my God. So the only real criteria that Hammer had for the actor playing the monster was that he be tall. 
and <laughs> Christopher Lee is that. Yes. Uh, it came down actually between six foot five Christopher Lee and six foot seven Bernard Breslau. I don't know who Bernard Breslau is. Exactly. Oh shit. <laughs> uh, so Lee's minimum rate as an actor at that time was eight pounds a day, whereas Breslau's was ten pounds a day. So Lee, despite being shorter, got the part. All right. Two inches shorter, but two pounds cheaper. So <laughs> Christopher Lee was born in 1922. He was the son of a British lieutenant colonel, a veteran of the Boer War and the First World War. And his mother was an Italian countess who could trace her lineage back to Charlemagne. What the fuck? So when he was six, his parents divorced and he went with his mother, who took him around Europe and introduced him to such notable European luminaries like the assassins of Grigory Rasputin. What the fuck? <laughs> she uh, remarried to banker Harcourt George St. Croix Rose, who was the uncle of James Bond creator Ian Fleming, uh, thus making Christopher Lee and Ian Fleming step cousins. Lee attended Wellington College as a teen with scholarships in Latin and Greek, but his math skills were very poor. He enjoyed fencing and cricket, but did not do well at other sports. And he was frequently beaten for breaking the rules, uh, including once he was beaten for having been beaten too frequently. What the fuck? At age... That shouldn't even be part of the punishment, <laughs> then. It should be like, oh, you've been beaten a lot. Your punishment is, like, not to get beaten today. No, it was like, God damn it, Christopher Lee. I have beaten you too many times. You're getting a beating for this. So at age 17, uh, his stepfather went bankrupt, so his mother left him. And so Lee bummed around Europe for a while, uh, staying with exiled Russian nobles uh, throughout the continent. And when World War II broke out, he enrolled in the Finnish army to fight against the Soviet Union in the Winter War. Why the Finnish? Probably because he was in Finland at the time. Because okay. he was just sort of bumming around Europe, hanging out with exiled Russian nobles. Okay. Uh, his father died of pneumonia in 1941, and Lee realized that he did not wish to follow his father into the British army. So instead, he signed up for the Royal Air Force. However, in his second last training flight, he suffered headaches and blurred vision, and the medical officer diagnosed him with a weak optic nerve, so he was permanently grounded, uh, much to his disappointment. Despondent, uh, Lee applied for Royal Air Force intelligence work. Impressed with his initiative, Lee's supporters sent him to Africa, where he rose through the ranks working in the intelligence field, where his job was basically to... Uh, as Lee put it, know everything about everything, um, but specifically to find targets for his squadron to bomb. He fought through the North Africa campaign, and when his squadron grew restless and mutinous during a period of little activity, Lee talked them into resuming their duties, winning much praise from his superior officers. From Africa, Lee's squadron moved on to Italy, where Lee met up with an Italian cousin of his, Niccolo Carandini, who was leading the Italian resistance movement. From there, Lee was attached to Special Operations Executive, um, basically the World War II equivalent of British Special Forces. Um, the SOE was a service of like secret agents who were responsible for 
um, reconnaissance, sabotage, and espionage, uh, who officially did not exist, and who were called things like the Baker Street Irregulars or the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Uh, This is also where his cousin Ian Fleming worked, uh, commanding and planning commando raids behind enemy lines. So what you're saying is... Christopher Lee is the real-life James Bond. There was a few real-life James Bonds, so I don't want to throw that title around too... uh, Liberally? Liberally. Um, But Lee believed that he was bound by the Official Secrets Act to never discuss his time in the SOE, which is, like, true, but Lee continued to, like, use that excuse even after, like, the um, statute of limitations on his period in the SOE was, like, lifted. Um, So he never really liked talking about it. Um, But what is known is that after the war was over, uh, Lee was selected due to his fluent grasp of Italian, French, and German, among other languages, uh, to go hunting, where he was assigned the job of tracking down Nazi war criminals. Oh my Uh, God, Benjamin. So he was given like dossiers on like who these guys were and what their crimes were and what they had done and then given instructions to find them, uh, interrogate them as much as possible, and then capture them and bring them back where possible. Uh, He did this work for a year after the war ended, finally retiring from RAF intelligence in 1946 with the rank of flight lieutenant. After the war, Lee was unsure what to do with the rest of his life. His cousin, uh, former resistance leader and now Italian ambassador to Britain, Niccolo Carandini, suggested to Lee that he become an actor uh, and used his connections to win Lee a contract with the rank organization, uh, despite protests from the company that he was too tall to be an actor. So Lee began in 1947, uh, attending rank's acting school. Uh, and he spent 10 years playing background and supporting characters, uh, during which time he said that he spent his time watching, listening, and learning, determined to be ready when his time came. That sounds like something a spy would say. He appeared in Olivier's Hamlet in 1948 as a spear carrier, but had no scenes with Peter Cushing, so they never met each other. Uh, They also both appeared in the 1952 version of Moulin Rouge, again with no scenes together, so they didn't meet. Over the next 10 years, he appeared in almost 30 films, usually as, like, stock bad guys uh, in action scenes. When Hammer asked him if he wanted to play Frankenstein's monster, he said yes, and that was that. Uh, The two actors struck up a great friendship on the set, uh, passing the time between takes, uh, quoting Looney Tunes cartoons back and forth to each other. (laughs) 31-year-old actress Hazel Court plays Frankenstein's fiancée, Elizabeth. Uh, She began acting at age 16 and had trained at ranking organizations acting school like Christopher Lee had. She mostly preferred appearing in comedy films, but her role here would win her a number of horror appearances in the future. Her young daughter, Sally Walsh, appears as Elizabeth in flashback scenes in this movie. Oh, that's cute. And Elizabeth's wardrobe consists of genuine hand-me-down Victorian clothes. Sangster's screenplay sets the film in the 1860s instead of the novel setting of 1790s, as Victorian costumes were far easier for Hammer to come by. Sure. 
Actor Robert Urquhart appears as Frankenstein's friend and accomplice Paul Kremp, uh, though after seeing the finished film at the premiere, Urquhart was so disgusted by the film's content that he stormed out of the theater and never made another horror film or worked with Hammer ever again. His loss. <laughs> the film's um, explicit for its time, gore, violence, and sexual content were considered quite shocking. It garnered an X rating from the BBFC. That's what they wanted. And a shot of a head dissolving in acid was cut from the film, while another shot of an eye being shot out by a gun was cut in the UK but retained in the US cut. Only in Japan was the film shown in its entirety uncensored. The film's lurid color scheme with bright red blood was considered to be like very alarming at the time. Like people <laughs> were not used to gore in color. Heck, even today, um, you can actually get your rating in your movie like toned down from say like an R to a PG-13 if like you don't show the blood in color. Isn't that what happened with Kill Bill? Yes, there are. There's a extended sequence in Kill Bill that's in black and white um, in order to get the rating down from NC-17 to R. Despite the fact that this content was considered very shocking at the time, uh, the mix of sex and violence in this film would become sort of Hammer's trademark. Christopher Lee's makeup was finalized the day before shooting began. Earlier attempts to craft a molded prosthetic around his head just like kept failing. So makeup artist Philip Leakey crafted the monster's look for Lee the old fashioned way. Uh, without latex or molds, meaning that the entire look had to be recreated from scratch every day. Wow. The film's score was composed by James Bernard, who had composed the music for Quatermass Experiment and X the Unknown. Bernard scored Quatermass, X the Unknown, and Quatermass 2 before working on Curse of Frankenstein, and then would continue to work on the scores for Hammer Horror films into the 1970s. That's a lot of work. So The Curse of Frankenstein premiered in London on May 2nd, 1957. When it was first released in the UK, its content outraged critics. It was called depressing and degrading uh, for anyone who loves cinema, preoccupied with disgusting gore, and generally the subject matter of the movie was considered morally repulsive. Although, the art direction and Cushing's performance did win some praise. <laughs> In the United States, the film was released by Warner Brothers, who had also handled the release of X the Unknown. There, it was released on July 20th, 1957. U.S. critical reaction was mixed, but there was less of that tone of moral repulsion that had characterized the British reviews. Although the film was regarded as gruesome and distasteful, the color cinematography was singled out for praise, as was Cushing's performance. No matter what the critics said, the film was a massive commercial success. Audiences flocked to see the picture, which made $8 million worldwide. And it cost like 200000 Yeah, so it basically made about 30 times its budget back. Holy moly. This success is considered a significant moment in the horror genre. It put Hammer 
on the map as a studio, resurrected the gothic horror genre, and paved the way for a revolution in the treatment of explicit sex, violence, and gore in horror movies. Curse of Frankenstein is currently available to stream on Hoopla, to rent on YouTube and Google Play. It's on DVD in the Horror Classics Collection from Warner Home Video, and in a spectacular new Blu-ray release from Warner Archive Collection. Well, that's very cool, and it sounds super accessible as well for the most part. So, folks, I hope you can watch along. I'm very excited. My first time seeing this movie, and it's clearly very notable in the history of horror. So, super stoked! You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Curse of Frankenstein from 1957, directed by Terence Fisher. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Curse of Frankenstein from 1957, directed by Terrence Fisher. Sarah, what did you think? I really liked this. Good. Um, You have like a knowing smile. Like, oh, "Oh, I knew you were going to like it. I'm just asking out of courtesy. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I hoped you'd like it. Um, yeah, I, I really did like this. Um, I think there are things that it could have done better. Interesting. But they were probably limited by budget and technical things. Hmm. Um, but I think it's a pretty dang good movie. Cool. What about you? I really like this movie. Um. How many times have you seen this? Uh, this is probably my second or third. Okay. So not, you know drilled into your brain like no. uh, like the early Dracula, for example. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, I think that watching it in the context of the show was really cool because I think one of the things that is hard to appreciate about this movie is how boundary pushing it was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're sort of coming at it from like a jaded modern perspective, <laughs> it's hard to like understand. Uh, so that was really cool. Yeah. The story is pretty different from both the Universal Frankenstein movie, which makes sense. Uh, there were there were legal considerations there. Um, and also pretty different from Shelley's version. There are a lot of familiar elements, but they've been significantly like remixed, basically. Uh, so why don't you guide us through the story of Hammer's version of Frankenstein? Sure. Uh, I will try to hit the nail on the head. Okay. Because they're called a hammer. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Got it. Good joke. It's the heat. You still have mush brain. Yeah. Um, Okay. So we are set in Victorian era Switzerland. And uh, we see that a Baron Victor von Frankenstein is in jail. Now, he's called for a priest, and we learn that this is because he's hoping that the priest will hear his story and make it so that the authorities will believe Victor. Yeah, he doesn't really care about, like, say, 
confessing for the sake of his soul or something like that. No, he kind of scoffs at the idea about that. He's like, keep your spirituality. Yeah. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Um, <laughs> so he, he's like, it all started back when I was 15. <laughs> um, now, when he was 15 on this particular day, um, his mother has just passed away, uh, leaving him like the last of his immediate family, as his father had died 10 years previous. He's hired a tutor uh, named Paul Kremp. What a name. Paul Kremp. <laughs> I think Krempa is just like a pretty normal German name. So I apologize to our German listeners. And yeah, he's like, um, I'm hiring you to tutor me because I'm 15 and I need to learn and I want to learn about science. And Paul's like, okay. <laughs> Two years later into studying, Things are going pretty well. Uh, they're doing some experiments. They seem to develop more of like a, a friendship rather than a tutorship kind of thing. And Victor ages terribly. Well, I mean... He's supposed to be 17. No, no. No? No, more time passes between the actor who plays him when he's young and the act and like Peter Cushing. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 more like because like Paul Kremp also like loses a bunch of hair and goes gray. <laughs> like it's like ten years, not like two years. Okay. Uh, still, that means he's twenty five. And <laughs> yeah, no, Peter Cushing is definitely playing like twenty years younger than himself. In these experiments, they manage to bring a puppy back to life. The movie does a very good job of not having you maybe have the time to think about the fact that. Um, in order to bring the puppy back to life, they did have to kill a puppy. Well, maybe they found the puppy, Ben. Maybe <laughs> got hit by a car, or I guess a carriage. Uh, do you think that's likely, or do you think it's likely that Victor Frankenstein killed a puppy? I do think that it was, like, impressive that they went with puppy, mm. because it's not a standard lab animal. Right. Like if it was a rat, mm -hmm. a guinea pig, even a rabbit, mm -hmm. we've seen that before. We've seen cats. The thing about puppies and dogs in general is people are really touchy mm -hmm. about like that specific species of pet. And so it seemed like, oh, that's pushing the boundaries there. Mm. Um, we'll get into that in the discussion. Um, the process of this is they have a... An aquarium filled with murky liquid and the dead animal is in there. They have electrodes going in and during the experiment they have a bunch of like bubbling multicolored test tubes and all that. And Paul handles the electrical side of things where there's these spinning wheels. It's a and, turbine. Oh, it's a turbine. Okay. Yeah. Well, spinning wheels <laughs> and flashing lights. Um, and... Yeah, they, they successfully bring this puppy back to life. And Paul is elated. He's like, this is going to be really amazing. It's going to push medical science to help more people because of the way that, like, the heart pumped, but, like, it wasn't responding. So medical procedures and surgeries, blah, blah, blah. Victor's like, no, not yet. We're not going to share anything yet. We've only just begun. Uh, we've restored life, but now we must create it. And Paul's like, ah, do we, though? He's skeptical, but he kind of goes along with it, even to the point of uh, helping Victor steal the uh, 
a hanged highwayman's corpse. But once Victor begins acquiring other limbs and organs uh, for his creature, um, hands, eyes, uh, Paul's like, no, I am not comfortable with this. This is going to only lead to evil. I'm not into this anymore. Part of this is because Victor's cousin, Elizabeth, has arrived to the house. Uh, she is going to be married to Victor. And with her arrival, Paul is like, you can't be doing this with the pretty lady downstairs. Like, what if she finds out? And Victor's like, so what if she finds out? We're, we're just doing science. What are you talking about? And sees nothing wrong with what he's doing. Yeah. Although I will say that as much as Victor can't see what's wrong with what he's doing, Paul has a really difficult time articulating what's wrong with what Victor's doing either. Like, he's like, oh, this is just going to lead to evil. And Victor's like, why? And Paul's like, because it's not natural. And Victor's like, we brought a puppy back to life for fuck's sake. (laughs) And then like when Elizabeth shows up, Paul's like, oh, she can't possibly find out. And Victor's like, why not? And Paul's like, because she... Her innocent mind mind. wouldn't be able to comprehend what we are doing. Yeah, and it's like, okay, Paul, maybe have some some more uh like faith in in elizabeth not to give victor any credit here i'm just saying that like paul's not great either yeah there are several times where paul goes to elizabeth to be like i think you should go and she's like i literally have nowhere else to go yeah elizabeth's (laughs) mom who is victor's aunt has died And so she has, like, nowhere to go. It was already made clear earlier in the movie that she and her aunt were, like, dependent on Victor's money anyways. Yeah, and it was kind of already an arrangement between her mom and Victor that she would marry him. Yeah, so she's... she's And she also says that she wants to. Right. So it's not just obligation. Like, she's like, no, I'm into him. Although Paul sort of, I think, reveals his, like, plebe status when he's like, what do you mean you're in like an arranged marriage for the purpose of like complex noble economics? How could you do that? And she's like, um, <laughs> what social class did you grow up in, Paul? God damn it, Paul. So the body of the highwayman, they get there a little late and crows have already picked out his eyes and his face is fucked. It's like half routed away. So Victor quickly disposes of the head, you know, puts it in this open vat of acid he has lying around because he's like the Joker or something. And Hey, it's great garbage disposal. <laughs> clearly, because the head's gone. And so now he has to come up with a brain. He He's built the rest of the body out, replaced the skull, parts of the face, the eyes, ears etc now he just needs a brain he has really lofty ambition for the creature he got its hands from a dead sculptor and its eyes from a dead painter and he wants the brain to be like a brilliant benevolent brain and one that's coming from an old dude so that the creature has like an experience of a lifetime Mm -hmm. under his belt Mm -hmm. um so uh he chooses a leading scientist and invites him over for dinner, conveniently, when Paul is supposed to be out of the house. (laughs) Uh, Paul comes back early, though, and is witness to the goings-on. 
the scientist, I forget his name. Professor Bernstein. Ah, Professor Bernstein. He's tired because he's old. So he goes to go up to the stair, go upstairs to go to bed. And Victor's like, oh, well, let me escort you up there. I have a mate, but let me escort you. And, uh, oh, like, check out uh, this painting here um, at the top of the landing. And, uh, you know, to really see the beauty of this painting, you need to stand back kind of so you're like right up against the landing. Oh, no, watch out. And he pushes him. Professor Bernstein lands like face first into the marble below. Now, this Dr. Bernstein, Professor Bernstein, had no family. He was like the last of his line. He was like 90 years old. And because Frankenstein is so generous, he allows the professor to be buried in his family mausoleum. Convenient. <laughs> yes, because that night, he uh, Victor goes and gets the brain. Now, Paul catches on. And comes down to the mausoleum after the brain has been removed and put in a jar. And is like, you can't fucking do this. Like, I know you killed the dude just for his brain. Now you're mutilating his body. And Victor's like, he's not using it. (laughs) They fight and the jar holding the brain breaks. So now the brain is damaged. God damn it, Paul. This is all your fault, Paul. (laughs) So... Victor repairs the brain as much as possible and forges ahead. A true capitalist. (laughs) I don't think that has anything to do with anything. So he attempts to do the, I guess I'll say experiment bit where um, it actually brings the creature to life by himself. Um, Previously, like with the puppy, Victor stood by the tank and like, turned knobs and Paul was over by the turbine with the electrical stuff. Now Victor has to try to do this all himself. So he's running around and it just doesn't seem to be working. So he turns everything off and he goes to Paul and he's like, Paul, I do really need your help. And he's like, fuck, I'm not helping you. Yeah, but I'm just going to keep fucking trying until you help me. <laughs> so Paul's like, well, when you put it that way, I guess I'll help you. <laughs> While Victor is gone, uh, there is a storm raging outside, and lightning hits the equipment, and uh, the, the electrical stuff starts up, and, you know, power into the body, and the body starts breathing. Um, by the time that Victor returns, the creature is standing, rips off the face of his bandages to show Christopher Lee <laughs> with, like, these really cool, like contact lenses and like a zombie face and just looking like real pissed off to be alive (laughs) they really went to a lot of effort i think to create an appearance for the creature where he looks like he's been sewn together from different parts from different bodies from like different dead things they definitely achieved the look that is described in the novel as a walking corpse yeah and indeed A lot of like, you know, we see corpses, we see severed hands, we see eyeballs, we see brains, we see all of this stuff. And it's it's there and it's like bloody and it leaves like stains on like clothes and rags that it's wrapped in. And Victor's like preservation jars and methods don't look like 
clean. perfect and clean like like it looks like muddy water everything looks dead like everything looks like a little decayed right rather than looking pristine yeah uh so as soon as victor shows up and he's like oh shit it's alive the creature comes towards him and attacks him and is choking him out i wonder if it remembers that victor killed him paul comes in just in time and knocks the creature out uh saving victor's life and paul's like what the fuck have you done and victor's like i succeeded (laughs) but the reason that it's attacking is because you fucked up the brain paul (laughs) it's all your fault paul and paul's like well you have to destroy it and victor's like no okay i'll do it tomorrow I'll do it tomorrow. He's going to do some brain surgery and fix the brain. Yes. Um, because he wants at least like a month or two to study it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, that plan goes out the window along with the creature. hey <laughs> Um, He escapes. And as he wanders the woods, uh, we come across a blind man and his grandson going for a leisurely walk through the woods, gathering firewood and mushrooms and uh, down by the river down by the river and it's it's fun because the blind man you know he's like i'm tired grandson i'm gonna sit here you go get the mushrooms and little boy's like okay grandpa he runs over to the water and you know the creatures wandering the woods and you're like oh blind man huh and the creature approaches the blind man and the blind man's like who's who's there i'm just a blind man don't i don't have any money or anything and here's the footsteps getting close. And he's like, no, I'm warning you, stay away. And has like his walking stick and tries to like defend himself, like kind of poke whatever is coming near away. The creature grabs the stick, breaks it. And uh, Grandpa tries to run away, trips and falls and uh, gets got. That's the last we see of him. And I or the boy for that matter. No, not quite. Oh, do we see the boy? We see the boy a little bit because... Uh, he hears like something weird going on in the woods because right. he's down by the river gathering the mushrooms and he comes back. Then we see that Victor and Paul are wandering the woods with their hunting rifles following the creature's tracks. And they're like, man, luckily it's easy to track this dude because he just rampages through everything, completely missing the discarded mushroom bag. Mm. That's what happened to the boy, Ben. Right. Yeah. And I love it because, like, you see them separate and you're like, oh, boy's going to get it. He's going to get tossed in the river like fucking Maria. Maria. And it's like, no, you thought the grandpa was safe because he was blind, but he got got. And you thought that maybe because he got got, the kid was fine. No, nah. he got got, too. My favorite thing about Victor and Paul tracking the creature is that Paul's like, oh, we should alert the villagers. And Victor's like, yeah, no, I sent the message like 35 minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they, they find the creature and Victor's like, no, don't shoot it. Like he tries to be like, come here, creature. <laughs> it's OK. We won't hurt you. And Paul's like, fuck this. Takes the shot right through the eye. Yeah. And kills the creature. Headshot. No scope. And it's like, okay, I want Paul on my team when the zombie apocalypse comes. (laughs) Victor's like, well, it's a good thing I didn't bother to alert the village after all. And Paul's like, you didn't, what the fuck? So they bury the creature in a lovely grave (laughs) down by the river. 
But Paul, Paul leaves. Paul's pissed because he's like, you didn't alert the villagers. Like, we're lucky that we came across him before he killed anyone. <laughs> I also love that they kill this shambling corpse that Victor brought to life. And Paul is like, well, at least it's all over now. Now that the thing is dead. Well, I shall now leave. Yeah, he says goodbye to Elizabeth and he packs up and leaves. Surely the nightmare is over. <laughs> so after Paul leaves, uh, not even, Paul says goodbye, leaves the room, and Victor's like, okay, turns around, creature's alive again. <laughs> he gave the creature life again, and uh, the creature's now chained up in the laboratory. Like that zombie in that one zombie movie from Romero. Day of the Dead. Yeah, the one in the army bunker. Um. Anyways, so... This whole time. This whole time. Victor has a maid named Justine. Uh, and she has the hots for him. And he definitely abuses that. <laughs> they are having uh, an affair. And this happens even... This has been going on for a long time, even before Elizabeth showed up. Yeah. I mean, to the point where Justine, like, thinks that she's going to marry Victor. Yeah. And when Elizabeth shows up, she's like, who's, who's this bitch? And he's like, oh, don't worry about it, Justine. Hey, Elizabeth, my fiancé. Yeah. But don't worry about it, Justine. Hey, Justine, prepare my fiancé's room. R right, but we're still going to get married, right, Victor? Call me Baron, Justine. And sure, if that's what I said. Yeah, he just, yeah. <laughs> he, yes, he does force Justine to call him, especially when they're making out, Baron Victor. Yeah. Uh, so she, she's upset that Elizabeth <laughs> is here. And she's like, one night, you're supposed to be marrying me, Victor. How how dare you? And he's like, you really thought I would marry you? And she's like, she's like, yeah, but you promised. And he's like, sure, hun. I promise a lot of things. And she's like, but you have to marry me because I'm pregnant. And he's like, yeah, just say it. It's any one of the boys in the village. It would be likely true anyways. And she like that. What a fucking dick move. <laughs> Um, and she's like, no, I'll, I'll tell everyone like what you're doing in your lab. And he's like, what will you tell? And he gets like very threatening. And she's like, I'll tell them what you do up there. And he's like, and what is that? And she's like, you know, the things, the things you do, the science things. And he's like, well, my dear, they will want proof. And then backs away. <laughs> right. Now, that night, I just need to leave my laboratory unattended for a few minutes, yes. Justine. Yes, that night. So we see Justine sneak up um, in and, her transparent nightgown. Yes. Uh, I learned some things from Universal, Ben. Um, Universal's nightgowns were never this see-through. <laughs> hmm. um, anyway, so she sneaks up to get into the lab. And Victor, like... All but pretty much announces when he leaves his lab, like, I am now going to bed mm -hmm. and leaving my laboratory unlocked. Mm -hmm. Justine goes in. She's looking for clues. She gets to a locked door in the back. And so she unlocks and she's looking around. And then we see the creature come from behind a corner and she sees it and screams, goes to run out of the room. But suddenly Victor pulls it shut and locks it behind him uh, and just like stares off while he hears like her scream as she is killed by his creature that's the last we see of justine literally because uh the vat of acid is also in that room <laughs> i'm gonna bring that up later conveniently victor tells 
Elizabeth, that Justine has gone away for the weekend. (laughs) She just does this sometimes. It's fine. So it's the eve of the wedding and the guests are there and they're having like a pre-wedding soiree. And uh, Paul was invited to the wedding. Um, and that's because Elizabeth is like, he, he was your friend. And Victor's like, no, I'm glad you invited him. I have something to show him in the lab. <laughs> and Paul does show late after all the guests have gone. And Elizabeth is like, oh, I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for coming. And uh, why don't you go up and surprise Victor? Uh, he's in the lab. Victor's been fucking Justine this whole time. Not anymore, of course. But like... He doesn't have, like, a lot of attention for Elizabeth. It's like, oh, good, Elizabeth, you're here. Now you can take care of all the, like, household management that I have no time for. Before Paul shows up and all the guests have gone away, Elizabeth's like, hey, Victor, it's the eve of our wedding. And Victor's like, you're right, I could be doing work in the lab right now. (laughs) I'm really sorry that Paul didn't show up. I really wanted to show him something. Elizabeth does keep going like, well, I'd love to help you out in your lab sometime. Like, just let me in. And he's like, soon, my dear. It's like, what do do you have planned for her? Yeah, no kidding. Um, Yeah, so Paul arrives and Elizabeth is like, yeah, to head on up. And he goes in and Victor's like, oh, excellent. I wanted to show you my creature who (laughs) is alive. And Paul's like, what the fuck? And Victor's like, no, but wait, here's, here's the best part. Okay, stand. I come here. Sit. Shake a paw. Yeah. And so the creature obeys. He's clearly, like, done some brain surgery because the creature's got a big, like, skull scar now. And Paul is like, oh, wow, what great genius. You know, it was really worth doing all this shit that you've done. This is when Victor loses it a little bit. He's like, this is because of you, Paul. It's all your fault, Paul. It's all your fault. He was going to be a great genius. He was going to be a sculptor, a painter, an engineer, an <laughs> astronaut, and a doctor. And you ruined that for him. Ruined yeah. that for us, Paul. Because, <laughs> you know, you smashed his brain and then shot him through the skull. <laughs> and Paul's like, I mean, I probably have some responsibility here because we started all of this together. But this is your doing. And Victor's like, nah. Victor's like, I'm going to get myself a new brain. (laughs) Your brain. Doesn't quite get that far. No, uh, because they they fight a little. um, And Paul's like, fuck this. I'm going to the authorities. Uh, I should have done this a long time ago. And it's like, yeah, you should have. So Paul goes to leave. Paul's a regular old Hamlet. (laughs) And uh, so Victor chases after him out of the house. And we see Victor trying to convince Paul not to go to the village, not to go to the police, anything like that. Um, Now, Elizabeth saw the two guys run out of the house, and she's like, men, I can't understand why they can't just get along. Maybe if I go up to the lab and see what's on the slab, I can have an idea of how to help them. So she goes on up and goes into the back room, just as we see that the creature is breaking free from his chains. She hears some, like, breaking glass. So she looks in the back room, and there's just a broken window leading to the roof. And she can tell that someone's up there. So she follows. And that's when uh, we cut back to Victor and Paul um, arguing. And Victor just finishes saying, like, and that's what'll happen to Elizabeth if you tell the police. (laughs) Right. 
basically. And Paul's like, you son of a... Wait, look up there in the sky. What is that? Uh, And they see the creature up on the roof. So Paul books it to the village to try to get help. And Victor's like, fuck it. Runs inside, grabs a gun, and gets to the roof. And he sees that um, Elizabeth is up there too, just as the creature grabs her to, like, kill her. Um, And he immediately shoots... Uh, but he's a terrible shot. It's also like those pistols are not great. Listen, Paul took him out in the fucking eye with a rifle. I don't know the difference between guns, Ben. (laughs) Hits Elizabeth in the shoulder. She goes down, shoots again, and this time hits the creature. But he's still coming. Um, and so Victor ends up like saying like, don't come, don't come near me, and is like clearly afraid, and throws a lantern at the creature, who lights up like a bonfire, like a wicker man, as mm-hmm. you, as it were, and uh, he uh, stumbles and falls through the glass skylight into the open vat of acid <laughs> to become the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> we cut back to the present with Victor telling the priest, and he's like, "See, don't you see? It wasn't me. It was." this creature that I happened to build, but it was him. I had nothing to do with it. I mean, I did just, you know, uh, confess to killing Professor Bernstein. But the point is, I'm in here for the murder of Justine, and I didn't do that one, other than the fact that I clearly sicked the creature on her. But, like, it wasn't me, technically. (laughs) And the priest is very skeptical, because he's like, you want me to believe you brought something back to life, and and that's why you are not at fault here. (laughs) And that's why you are a good man. (laughs) Now, Paul has arrived and uh, we see him in another room with Elizabeth, who just has like her arm in a sling. And he's come to see Victor. And Victor's like, this is perfect. Paul was the other witness to all of this. He'll be able to convince you, priest, that like this creature was a, a real thing and that I'm not at fault. Paul comes in and he's like, what creature? No, he basically tries to like ask Victor like who's at fault here whose fault is all this but it is also the other thing because Victor's like Paul you can tell him that it's the creature's fault and Paul's like whose fault is it Victor and Victor's like you know the creature and Paul's like who so I read that as like Paul trying to see if uh Victor will take responsibility but he is also just like not corroborating the story at all. Yeah, I read it a little differently, but I want to talk about that later. Okay. Um. So Paul leaves, and we see that Victor gets uh, taken to the guillotine, and that's the end. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the end. Sure. Uh, you said you interpreted that scene differently. So the ending's really interesting because it's really interesting to think about, like, what happened between Victor shooting Elizabeth and burning the creature up and Victor being in jail? Because well, I presume Paul arrived with the villagers. Right. And they saw that Victor had shot his wife. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth never sees the creature very pointedly. And they even make a point of saying that like only Paul and Victor ever saw him. And yeah, like the moment where the creature comes up behind her to grab her is when she turns around and is like oh hi victor and she 
he pulls the gun and shoots her, basically. So the last thing Elizabeth remembers is getting shot by Victor. That's what she sees, not Mm -hmm. the creature. So maybe they brought him in based on that? Well, here's the thing. They've arrested him for Justine's murder. Yes. In fact, they haven't just arrested him. He's going to get executed for Justine's murder, which means he's been tried and convicted, which means there must have been like evidence and testimony. But what evidence? Because here's the thing. In order to convict someone for murder, like you need habeas corpus, right? Like maybe her diaries. Like where's Justine's body? Like we don't know that Victor put Justine's body in the acid tank. We don't really know what he does with it because we don't see her again after the scene where she's killed. But if he didn't put Justine's body in the acid tank, what the fuck are you doing, Victor? And if her body did go into the acid tank, then like what would even possess them to arrest Victor for Justine's murder in the first place? The creature's gone. It's been turned to acid. Paul's been all like, oh, I'm going to go to the authorities and tell them about your horrific experiment this whole time, Victor. But nobody believes Victor about his experiment. So the only witnesses that you could call at a trial for Victor are Paul and Elizabeth. Elizabeth has been under the impression that Victor's a dope, cool guy until he suddenly shot her one night. So that leaves Paul... And instead of being like, yeah, Victor made a monster that went on a rampage, the only logical conclusion is that Paul was like, oh, yeah, you know how their maid went missing? Yeah, Victor killed her. Like, that's the only possible conclusion is that, like, Paul doesn't just sell Victor out at the end of this movie. He must have sold Victor out at the trial. I wonder, what if in an earlier draft, Justine's body was being prepared to create the bride. Maybe, but there's like, there aren't a lot of like leftover pieces, if that's the case. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is, is that like, it's a very thematically, it works really well that Victor has been condemned for the murder of Justine because really it's Victor's treatment of Justine that is like the height of the examples of his like callousness Mm -hmm. in his character that the whole movie is a character study of but like the other thing about paul at the end is you know okay so victor's already been condemned and in order for victor to have been condemned paul must have like already kind of sold him up the river he comes back to see victor at the very end why because he's he's come to talk to victor and you know as you say it's sort of as if he's like trying to get victor to admit his responsibility but like why bother victor's already going to be executed like what's that really about and so you know what we do see is that paul is very pointedly not admitting that the creature exists Mm -hmm. as you say like victor's like paul tell them about the creature and paul's like the fuck are you talking about so he's absolutely selling victor up the river and then the way that he keeps asking like you know who's responsible back to victor it's less about trying to get at least in my opinion victor to recognize his own culpability and it's more about paul throwing it back at victor and basically saying to victor you're responsible the creature did it you know it's the creature not not me who's responsible who's responsible like 
it's you, Victor, is what Paul's saying to him. And it's yeah. not about like trying to get Victor to admit to something. It's just about Paul twisting the knife in more. Because at the end of the day, why did he bring Elizabeth with him? What's she there for? She's there so we can see that she's alive. Right. But like, why did Paul bring her on this visit? You know, he goes out to her at the end and he says, there's nothing that we can do for him. And, you know, Elizabeth's like, well, you, you tried or whatever. And it's like, Paul didn't try anything. So he must have told Elizabeth like, oh, you know, I'm going to go check on him. I'm going to see if there's anything we can do for him in these last moments. But like, Paul wasn't there for that. Paul was there to fucking gloat. And, you know, if we think about the fact that like Elizabeth's been shot and it's like 1860 and she's been shot with like a crap ass fucking flintlock pistol, like Paul must have been the one who saved her life, right? Like when he arrived there with the villagers, because otherwise she would have, you know, gotten infected and died. So she's alive. Paul saved her life. He's brought Elizabeth with him to gloat to Victor to be like, hey, guess who gets the girl? Because the whole time that Paul's living with them, you know, like after he abandons Victor, like he he says to Victor, you know, I, I will have no part of these experiments, but he keeps living there. And Victor even says to Paul, like, why are you still here? And Paul's like, well, it's for Elizabeth. I want to make sure she's safe. And I think it's really clear to me, at least, that like Paul falls in love with Elizabeth, like really early on. Absolutely. One thing that I, I find very strange and interesting with this film is that Paul doesn't give a fuck about Justine no. being in the house with Victor slash the creature. No, no, that was never a concern. Yeah, like because she like I th- was thinking that it was a part of that class thing because mm-hmm. she's working class, whereas Elizabeth is like a proper lady. Mm-hmm. But like Paul's not upper class either. So it's yeah, but for who you want to protect, I guess. Sure. I think it's mostly that Paul's in love with Elizabeth. And the thing about Paul that's interesting as a character is the movie kind of positions him as if he's like the good guy, but like he's not, he's not. And the, the movie's structured so interestingly because Paul and Frankenstein and Elizabeth, like all should be fitting into certain like archetypes, but they don't quite. Because, like, Frankenstein is absolutely evil, totally callous, and that's, like, the movie is a character study for him. Yeah, it's kind of the point. But, like, Paul is not a hero. No. And he's not even a protagonist. Like, Victor is the protagonist. The movie's from Victor's point of view. He's driving the plot. So even though he's, like, absolutely without care for anyone in the world other than himself, he weirdly gets, like audience sympathy simply because he's the character that we're like seeing the story through and he like he's not sympathetic at all but like who are you gonna cheer for paul because the thing about paul is like paul is the one who keeps making these speeches about like oh what you're doing is evil and wrong and against god but like what's paul doing to stop it Even if he is Victor's romantic rival for Elizabeth, like, he doesn't stand a chance. She is totally cool with being with Victor until after Victor's dead. And so Paul wins the story by doing nothing the whole time, basically. Yeah, Paul is definitely um, kind of a piece of soggy cardboard. Um, Not a whole lot to him. I think it's interesting that we get to see Victor when he's 15, as well and he's 
he's just the same. Yeah. You know, he's always been like this. And it's kind of that, like, no one has told him no, because he's up a class. He can either pay for it or get away with it or whatever. And it's it's not the same kind of, like, problem child that we see in, say, like, Bad Seed with mm. Rhoda, who is just not sane. Um, he just has never had to think about how his actions affect others. Yeah. Even if his mom has died when he's 15, he's been the Baron since he was five. Yeah. And I think because I've worked on this stuff for so long, Paul thinks that they have a colleague relationship. Mm. And as he starts having doubts and Victor like doesn't hear him and just assumes that he'll go along with it, Paul starts to realize that, no, actually I've... We're not even friends, are we? Like, I've just been helping you do these things without really recognizing the problem with me doing that. And, like, Victor keeps Paul around because Victor wants an audience. Like, that's what Paul is at the end of the day. You know, Victor's not even doing the thing where he's like, you called me mad? I'll prove that I'm not mad. He's not, Victor's not trying to prove himself right. Victor knows that he's right. He's trying to prove Paul wrong. It's not even that. Um, he's trying to get his name in the record books. And he believes that he can do anything. And he has the right to do anything because he is upper class. <laughs> and like that's like not even subtext here. This is like the point of the movie. Paul goes to the edge of being a mad scientist. Like, mm. he's experimenting on a puppy. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's into it, man. Yeah. Like, when they're doing the puppy experiment, we get close-ups of both of their faces, and they're both, like, super into this. Mm-hmm. Um, once they've succeeded, he's like, okay, cool. Let's go publish this. Here's the thing. The reason I, I put emphasis on the fact that it was a puppy is mm. because, as I said, that's not a typical lab well, it was a Rottweiler, but it's not a typical animal you experiment on. So I think they were trying to push people's buttons with using a puppy. If it had been, say, a guinea pig or a rabbit, something that you would more expect, um, I do think Paul would be, yeah, that's just a scientist doing something weird, but, mm. you know, whatever. The fact that it's on something that like people hold really dear puts him into that gray area the neutral zone let's say between regular science and mad science right um which yeah i think goes to your point about how he's not a hero right like he i'm not saying he's morally gray but he is just as culpable sorry not as culpable but he is at fault here yes and paul's really interesting to me because in some ways, like he falls into that, like David Manners place of like, just not really doing anything because if he does, the movie would be over Yes, and just being like a witness to things. But somehow Paul in this particular story being indecisive and not acting actually makes him really interesting because like I was saying earlier, I think your natural assumption would be, be like, okay, he's the good guy. Victor's the bad guy. But, like, Victor has all of these protagonist traits of being, like, driven and having, like, goals and wanting to do things. And Paul, Paul's kind of a fucking weasel. 
Yeah, and he's not even enough to be an antagonist. No, no, because he can't stop Victor. Like, the best he can do is he breaks the brain jar a bit and he shoots the creature later, both of which are things that, like, Victor uses to, like, blame him for the creature being violent later. And then, yeah, he basically just, like, more or less what Paul does is he waits for Victor's experiment to destroy him and then he swoops in and gets Elizabeth at the end of the story. Like, Paul's kind of a shitty guy, but because, like, he's not the one who did science necromancy... (laughs) Like he not to a human anyways, he sort of gets to like have the moral high ground. Speaking to your point about Paul just sitting around, Mm. that is one of the failings of this movie, I think, like in the sense of like, it just feels like we're just waiting for some things to happen at points. It just feels like the pacing drags its feet a bit Hmm. um, while we wait for the creature to kind of get constructed. They do some things to try to keep the... Uh, I guess tension up, but it it just doesn't quite, uh, it doesn't keep up that tension for me. Like Justine is around to establish that like she has an affair with dude and she's upset that Elizabeth has arrived. She disappears until it's time for her to be like, hey, I'm going to go tell people, not unless my creature gets you first. Um, I think they could have done a bit more with like building some like Uh, for lack of a better word, romantic or dramatic tension where, you know, she's still sneaking around and Elizabeth going like, well, is there something going on with the maid? And like not having anything there. Right. I disagree with you, but I can see where you're coming from on all these things. I think the thing about this movie is that this movie is a character piece about Victor Frankenstein and isn't about anyone else. And so like, it would make sense to do like some sort of romantic subplot about like, you know, Elizabeth, is she going to find out that Victor's with Justine is, you know, and all this kind of stuff. If you wanted the movie to give Elizabeth something to do um, or give Justine something to do, but the movie's not interested in that because Justine and Elizabeth exist in the movie only to illustrate elements of Victor Frankenstein's character, because ultimately would Victor even care if Elizabeth found out about him and Justine? I doubt it. Yeah, probably not. So in that reason, even though it would give Elizabeth or Justine something to do, it doesn't have any dramatic weight on the story because of how the story's been constructed. Mm-hmm. And the thing, you know, I feel you on like the fact that it takes a while for the creature to get built. And you're like, we're really like kind of filling time here, except that we're not if you look at the movie the right way. If you look at the movie in the sense of like, oh, the main attraction of this movie is going to be seeing the creature go on a rampage, then yeah, it feels like it takes a long time to get to the creature. But the horror of this movie isn't about the creature. The horror of this movie is about Victor Frankenstein and the horrible things that he does. And that starts from the start of the movie and continues on throughout. Yeah, I think like if you think about the critical reaction to this movie and how negative it was. I I sometimes wonder like how much of it, you know, was really coming from the blood and the gore and the, the, the sexiness and, and all of that. And how much of that shock and revulsion that these critics felt was coming from how callously Victor Frankenstein regards everything. And the fact that this is this portrayal of a Lord that is showing like 
this guy is the way he is because he has the privilege of never needing to develop a moral compass. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting thinking about this uh, post-Trump. Sure. Um, But I think, you know, the movie does a pretty good job of like underlining its theme without it being like, you know, changing the Frankenstein story in order to make it happen. And there's like, when Justine is confronting him and saying like, well, I'll tell everyone, she is down a few steps and it's really well shot and really well blocked. Um, And she tries to come up a few steps and Victor like pushes her back down. There's some really interesting things going on there with the way that Peter Cushing and that actress are, are interacting together. It's really well done. Peter Cushing is really good yes it is weird to see him making out with justine because like while he's younger it's still really hard not to see general tarkin so it's just like a little odd but that's just me he does a really good job acting you know what's funny about that is for a lot of people seeing cushing in this movie is sometimes a little weird um but it's not because of tarkin it's because after this movie Hammer did the most natural thing in the world, which is they made a Dracula. And in Dracula, Christopher Lee, of course, plays Dracula. So Peter Cushing plays Van Helsing. And both of these movies turned into big series, long-running series. And Cushing played Van Helsing over and over again. He played Sherlock Holmes a bunch of times. And a lot of British audiences became more used to seeing him as a good guy than a bad guy. Yeah. And that makes Frankenstein kind of a weird outlier for him until you get to Tarkin, who obviously is a a major villain. But yeah, he's really good in this. I think Christopher Lee is really good. He's doing some really interesting physical acting. Yes. And the makeup is, I'll call it a good college try. Mm. I think they do a really good job. I think the concepts were really good. The makeup ends at his neck and you can see that it does. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just like a little bit, I think probably a limitation of their budget. Mm. Um, but I think they did a pretty good job because it very much resembles the kind of, um, zombies that you see in the Romero mall zombie mm. movie. Dawn of the Dead. And then of course, Day of the Dead, as mm-hmm. I've already pointed out. Those movies came out in like the late sixties, early seventies ish. So it's really interesting to me that like, they're using that kind of makeup now for a corpse, and it's going to be used later on. Mm-hmm. The thing about it is, like, his face has texture. Yeah. Right? They, they haven't just, like, put, like, a pale foundation on him, which I think is all that we've really gotten a lot of the times for, like, undead characters before yes. now. The focus on Victor here does mean that, like, I think the monster gets a little bit of the short end of the stick. I agree with you that Lee does some very good physical acting, especially with like portraying how the creature like moves and walks and like how kind of jerky it is. But this is not the showcase to turn him into a star the way that the role was for Karloff. Yeah. But as we've pointed out, the movie isn't concerned about the creature. The movie's concerned about Frankenstein. And it's a Victor Frankenstein who's like almost completely different from like Shelley's Frankenstein or Colin Clive's Frankenstein, but he feels totally realized, like completely believable and consistent. He feels like 
yeah, this makes sense, you know? It's definitely... Okay, here's the thing. This is Victor Frankenstein from the novel if he didn't get grossed out by the look of the creature at the end. Right. It's such a key difference that when the creature's appearance is revealed, in this movie, it's Paul who gets grossed out by the creature's appearance, who goes like, oh, it's hideous. It must be evil. And like suggests like getting rid of it. This... Oh yeah, they have a whole thing of like, well, because I'll be putting in a good brain, his appearance will heal to be good. Yeah, like Victor doesn't give a shit that the creature's ugly. He's like, yeah, the scars will heal. He won't look all grimacy and evil once he has a nice brain in him. Weirdly enough, this Victor Frankenstein might be the least sympathetic between this Shelley and Colin Clive, he's he's definitely the biggest asshole. <laughs> but he's maybe the best parent of the three because Shelley's Victor Frankenstein is like, you're ugly, I'm leaving. Uh, Colin Clive's Frankenstein is like, parenting's hard, I need a nap. And this Victor Frankenstein is like, no, I'm going to keep trying. It's not my fault. Like, Paul, it's your fault that his brain is broken, but I'm going to keep trying. Uh, I disagree. (laughs) I think Colin Clive's method of parenting is admirable, a good college try, as it were. And, you know, he's just blind to the fact that the monster's getting fucking abused. Right. So he's, like, negligent a bit, but he's not... Like, demanding sit, stand. Okay, okay, fair, fair, fair. This Frankenstein is not, maybe not a good parent. He's, he's, a, he's a monster trainer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Part of why I think it has some of those pacing issues is because, to me, it felt like they gave us a lot kind of early. Hmm. With some of the bloodiness, uh, like cutting off the highwayman's head, the hands, that sort of thing. And then we have this dullness in the middle where it's Paul going to Elizabeth being like, you should leave, and her being like, no. And Victor going out to get more body pieces. It just, yeah, it just lulled a bit in the middle because it it feels like they gave us a lot of, like, gore in the beginning. Hmm. But maybe that's because, like, I mean, yeah, to be fair, they... (laughs) They do show what looks to be real eyeballs. Yeah. I uh, I don't feel that lull in the pacing. Um, I do think that once you know that the movie's budget was limited, you can feel that like, oh, this is like three people, four people in like one set. Yeah. For like the duration. But I think they do a pretty good job of keeping the characters and the drama interesting enough to like keep it going. Really, I think the whole movie is hanging on the fact that Peter Cushing is giving such a good performance. Yes. And I think the music does some really good work here too, in uh, trying to like emphasize tension and dread mm-hmm. um, as things are kind of coming to a climax. It's got that like intense strings yeah. situation going. And I, I do have to also like commend the mise-en-scene and art direction, mm-hmm. uh, which I think would be like for sets and props and stuff, because uh, they really worked for that color and a variety of color and a range of color. It wasn't um, I wasn't really sure what to expect. And you could tell that they were like, OK, we want to make sure that there is at least some piece of like a vibrant red, mm-hmm. even if it's not necessarily blood mm-hmm. going to be in this scene. Um, they did a really good job. 
I, I would have preferred there to be like some more shadows or some more things set at night. The things that are set at night that come to mind are Justine's fight and then going up to the uh, the lab and then the climax at the end um, where you can see that like, oh, we're actually outside at night. Yeah. Um, the other stuff at night would just be like him getting the brain and cutting down the, the corpse from the, the gibbet and things like that. There is a lot of like things are pretty brightly lit through this movie which is i think because it's technicolor right so it's a limitation of like what they have to do for the color well it's eastman color actually which is single strip so you don't need to have that three times lighting but i do think that probably it was still a consideration it was still wanting to like because so much of this movie's controversy i guess was the way in which it was like oh we're gonna show you things yeah Um, I guess you do need light to show us. Right. I'm really glad you brought up like some of the little moments of gore through the movie. Like, because I think from our jaded modern perspective, we sort of just think about like the big scare moments, like when you first see the creature's face or when Paul shoots him in the eye. But it's important to recognize that like the horror in this movie is throughout the movie that like an audience of the time would find that part of the movie where he cuts the corpse's head off and then just absent-mindedly wipes the blood off on his coat. Like an audience at the time would have found that just as horrific as anything else in the movie. Mm-hmm. I, I do kind of wish we could see the head in the acid because mm-hmm. I want to see how they did those effects. Yeah. The thing that like makes the movie feel unique is the really like clinical way mm. that it treats, you know, blood and body parts and things, which really matches you know, the callousness of the protagonist. It's the, it's the way that Victor just is like, oh yeah, and I picked up these hands. It, you know, just was some bribery. It, it didn't Aren't take they anything. magnificent? Yeah. Came from a sculptor. Yeah. Like, it's like, wait a minute, what? Um, Victor's aristocratic arrogance, where he has like no thought for the personhood of anyone but himself. You know, we've talked about how this comes from the fact that he's this Baron, how he's had like control of his own destiny since he was like 15, how it's built into his class. But I think what's really unique about this movie is that the movie doesn't just tell us, you know, oh, so this is how he was able to do such horrible things in the lab. The movie shows us that he does horrible things all the time. Yeah, this is just who he is. Exactly. There's his treatment of women, which is terrible. Um, You know, either it's the way he treats Justine where he's like a total cad or Elizabeth where he's just like not, she's just a convenience to him. Yeah. She's there to have around. Right. And not even enough to be a trophy. Right. Like he's mostly just happy that there's someone to like manage his household. Mm -hmm. Right. And the movie makes it clear that the reason he is this way is because he's the Baron. He's not Dr. Frankenstein. Right. He's Baron Frankenstein. I think it's important to acknowledge like how subversive and anti-establishment, anti-authority, anti-nobility point of view like that would be in a movie in Britain in 1957. Absolutely. Of course, the way that the movie shows that Victor's like, you know, more interested in what Paul thinks than seeing Elizabeth on his wedding night and the way that Victor keeps like bringing up that Paul's just as responsible for the creature as he is does sort of bring us back to that homosexual parenthood 
subtext from Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, I think you could definitely make a case of like a homosexual relationship here, or at least a subtext. But I felt like it was more like a kid wanting to get that gold star from their teacher. Yeah, absolutely. And prove like how smart they are. Absolutely. Paul is here just to just to see how smart Victor is. Yeah. I think the subtext here, I totally agree with you. It's not doing a lot of work thematically. Same with, honestly, the parenthood topic in general from Shelley. Like, both elements are kind of here vestigially because the movie's much more interested in talking about the issue of um, abuse of power. Yeah, which is also why I think he would be a terrible parent because <laughs> he would definitely be one of those people who, like, you didn't get a hundred on your math quiz. Well, like, think about how that reflects poorly on me. Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I think the other thing about the homosexual subtext is like this movie wasn't made by a bunch of homosexuals the way that Bride of Frankenstein was. So it's just not, you know, getting that room to breathe. Sure. Universal being so litigious about you can't use anything that's going to make anybody think of our version really worked out in Hammer's favor here because they had to be like aggressively creative in coming up with like a whole new interpretation of this story. And I think they did a really good job. But one thing that I thought about, you know, the way this movie ends with Victor getting executed and how different that is from the ending of the 31 version where it's like Henry. Oh, he, he's being nursed back to health and he'll still get married. Yeah. And it's so happy. Um, was it reminded me of the fact that the 1931 version was supposed to end with Henry dying in the windmill. Yeah, but they thought it was too much. And it was supposed to end with um, his friend, Victor Clerval, ending up with Elizabeth. Yes, I was also thinking about that. Which is which is how this one ends. Um, so I thought that was kind of ironic. Well, are you ready to move on to ranking? Yeah, since we're sort of comparing and contrasting... Anyways, let's uh, let's do it. So I feel like maybe I enjoyed this more than you just because I didn't have that pacing problem you did. But maybe it'll surprise you to know that I do think this isn't as good as any of the movies in the like initial Universal trilogy of Frankenstein movies. Okay. I started out looking below Son of Frankenstein, which is at 13. Uh, Frankenstein is at 17. Bride of Frankenstein's at 18. I was looking below that for my range. I'm assuming you were kind of doing the same? Yeah. I actually started by looking at what our last color horror film was, which was 1954's Phantom of the Vue Morgue. Wow, it's been a while, huh? I was really surprised. Um, yeah, I wanted to think about like the way that color impacted the horror. Yeah, that's a and good point. And Phantom of the Vue Morgue is also one of the more violent iterations. And, you know, it, uh, it goes some places. It's also stuck with uh, adapting Murders of the Rue Morgue and having a monkey go do the business and all that <laughs> jazz. But uh, so Phantom of the Rue Morgue is ranked at number 94. Oof. This is definitely better than that. But that's like where I first started. For sure. Where I kind of ended up was I looked up the list until I got to places that felt right. Mm -hmm. And my eyes fell to House of Wax at mm. number 40. Mm. Um, 
also a color film, also like gimmicky with 3D coming right at you. Pretty into the the gore and stuff, especially for its time, 1953. And I was like, okay, this feels like a really good comparable spot. Right above that is White Reindeer, which I think is really heckin' good and I think is better than The Curse of Frankenstein because even with like long periods of like no dialogue, White Reindeer holds my attention the entire way through. Hmm. Whereas The Curse of Frankenstein is good. You know, it's good. This is like top 50s of the list. But I did find myself going like, great, here's Paul again to go to Elizabeth. So I felt my ceiling worked with House of Wax. And then looking down from there, I stopped around the Black Sleep at number 47, which was that universal callback. Right. Yeah. 1956. And I feel like the Curse of Frankenstein should go above that because they're doing something new. Yes. With the same kind of starting material. Yeah, I think so as well. Yeah. So my range is 40 to 47. Okay. Your range is nearly 20 films below mine. Oh, no. So I, as I said, thought this should go below the Frankensteins, but I was looking up high. I think this is the best horror movie we've seen in like a good while. Looking below the Frankensteins, we have Dracula at 19, Murders in the Zoo stuck out to me because of the way that... The callousness. The callousness of the lead character played by Lionel Atwell versus Frankenstein here. And ultimately, I still find Murders in the Zoo, despite its really bad comic relief, more shocking than Curse of Frankenstein. Because as bad as Frankenstein is, you know... He is right. He does never actually kill anyone himself. Uh, Lionel Atwell definitely kills some people. Um, he kills the professor, Ben. Oh, that's true. Poor old Professor Bernstein. I forgot about him. Regardless, um, I thought that Murders in the Zoo was a better horror movie. I also thought Fairman Maria was better, which is right below there. The Wolfman is below Fairman Maria, and I really like The Wolfman. It's a lot of fun, but I felt like... Curse of Frankenstein feels like it's really trying to push the audience's buttons in a way that Wolfman is not. So I had my ceiling here at 22. And then I worked my way down going, okay, what's what's Curse of Frankenstein definitely better than? What am I not going lower than? And I saw X the Unknown, which was our last Hammer film at 25 and i went this is definitely better than x the unknown like this is definitely a step up an evolution an improvement on the last hammer horror film we saw so i ended up with 22 to 25 as my range so that means that the difference between our range is 25 to 40 so that's 15 spots which means the halfway point is uh between mad love and the walking dead okay <laughs> Uh, okay, I know what you are going to say. Okay. But as much as Mad Love is like ongoing saga of like weird doctor in love with lady who's in love with like normal doctor or whatever. <laughs> and like that weird like love triangle. It's pushing boundaries in terms of like the German expressionism with the shadows. Uh, Peter Laurie's performance is really heckin' good. Colin Clive had a bad point in his life yes. here. Yes. Yeah. And is sad to think about here. 
Um, The Walking Dead. Walking Dead's real good. Yeah. Man brought back to life by God to destroy gangsters. Yes. By the Lord himself. I think these are better, Ben. I don't agree. Night of the Hunter's right above Mad Love and Night of the Hunter's really good. But we also like, like nothing in Curse of Frankenstein, I think, demonstrates the level of artistry that is on display in Night of the Hunter. But I also feel like Curse of Frankenstein had like a much clearer idea of like what it was trying to do than Night of the Hunter, which sometimes feels like a little all over the place. It's It's got first movie issues where it's like because it is a first movie yeah where it's like i'm gonna just kind of throw a little bit of everything i'm interested in here so it's really hard for me to compare those two i think that the writing in curse of frankenstein is better i think like as a character piece about victor frankenstein it's more like focused than mad love which like you have to remember that mad love's adapting hands of orlac and then bolting that love triangle story onto Hands of Orlac. Yeah, from the perspective of, like, how successful are they at adapting the, from their source material, I have to give the prize to Curse of Frankenstein. Curse of Frankenstein does something really smart, which is basically that it breaks down its source material and then, like, rebuilds the story from the ground up around a central thesis, right? Yeah, so I think it does a pretty good job. I don't feel comfortable putting curse of frankenstein above the night of the hunter though because of those very like chilling moments the stark visuals um like there are so many points of night of the hunter that come to mind immediately as Mm. like striking visuals and like chilling moments whereas curse of frankenstein i just watched it and there was nothing that like struck me in the same way Mm. um like it's good and it has good imagery and visuals um but it isn't as like horrifically striking i think as night of the hunter i feel weird putting curse of frankenstein below quatermass experiment which is at 15 and x the unknown which is at 25 but i think this is probably about as good as i'm gonna get here and i I do agree with you about the visuals so do you want to go below night of the hunter but above mad love yeah Okay, so then entering the list at the new number 32 is The Curse of Frankenstein from 1957, directed by Terrence Fisher. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and uh, wherever you want to listen to it by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review. Uh, Tell a friend about the show online, in person, spread the word. 
and if you'd like to give us some financial support, you can do so by heading to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the show for as little as a dollar a month and gain bonus content at the $5 and $10 levels, like cut audio from past shows or reviews of quirky Czech puppet movies. Um, <laughs> and thanks to our supporters on Patreon, we are now doing monthly horror-adjacent movie reviews starting with abbott and costello meet frankenstein which just went up uh, and those are going to come out on the last saturday of every month so long as we stay above 150 dollars in support on patreon so check that out at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast so ben what are we watching next week well sarah we're sticking with hammer uh and we are watching quatermass 2 oh so that should be quite interesting to see uh, the real sequel to Quatermass, uh, as opposed to the sort of spiritual sequel that was X the Unknown. Exciting. See you then, Creatures of the Night. E- exciting? Oh, yes. Exciting. Bye. Bye. Bye.